Hey, and welcome. I'm Patrick Eddington, Senior Fellow here at the Cato Institute. I want to thank you for joining us today for our discussion on domestic extremism and political and violence, the threat to liberty. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be joined by some really great panelists today. Uh, before we get to them, however, I just want to make a few quick uh, housekeeping announcements. Um, you can submit your questions uh, via the webpage, Facebook, and YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag Cato1A, as in First Amendment. Uh, questions will be answered essentially uh, throughout this uh, particular uh, telecast um, as I can work them in, uh, in terms of where they kind of fit in the discussion. Um, I want to just quickly go through uh, my introductions here uh, for this terrific team of folks we have with us today. Starting with uh, Professor Chris Viles, uh, who is Associate Professor of English and Director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut Stores and the co-author of the U.S. Anti-Fascist Reader. And my, uh, my friend Mike German, uh, fellow at the Brennan Center uh, and uh, uh, Brennan Center of, uh, for Justice and a former FBI Special Agent, a 16-year veteran with the Bureau. And finally, we're joined by uh, Stephen Monticelli, a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in Rolling Stone, The Daily Beast, and other outlets. Uh, Stephen is based down in Texas, unless I'm badly mistaken. Um, and we're going to have uh, a lot to hear from him uh, as we go through about exactly what he's been seeing on the ground. Uh, I just want to, you know, kind of set the scene here for folks uh, very, very quickly. We've had, you know, an awful lot of commentary uh, over the course of the last uh 18 months or so since the attempted coup on January 6th, uh, 2021, or riot or insurrection, whatever term of art you want to use. Uh, and a number of individuals uh, have been indicted, of course, in connection with that. And some of those folks have belonged uh, to some of the groups that we are going to talk about today, including the Oath Keepers. And in fact, Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, is currently on trial for seditious conspiracy and other related charges. Uh, as we gather here today, you know, for this particular discussion, I think it's important for us to kind of get a sense of just exactly where uh, this inflection point has kind of occurred with respect to the rise of these different kinds of groups. You know, domestic extremism and particularly violent domestic extremism has been part of the fabric of American life, unfortunately, uh, for over 150 years at least. And I'm talking here specifically, of course, about the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, after the Civil War. And the Klan was the, the primary group engaged uh, in that kind of activity, that kind of violent activity and, and overtly uh, racist uh, and lethal activity uh, between roughly 1868, uh, and there are many who would argue you know, right up to today, but its, it's heyday, so to speak, was certainly in that immediate uh, uh, Civil War, post-Civil War period. The U.S. government mounted a campaign uh, that was actually led by the Secret Service and later augmented by the U.S. Army to essentially crush the Klan in, uh, in that particular period. This happened uh, during the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, and the Klan was kind of taken out of circulation in terms of being a large, really well-organized, orchestrated force for a long time. Uh, it did make a resurgence, though, uh, beginning uh, essentially with the Woodrow Wilson administration and really kind of peaked. And there's a very infamous picture uh, of a huge Klan march uh, in DC here in our nation's capital uh, from the 1920s. It's very jarring if you actually get a chance to kind of find that picture online. It's a reminder of just exactly how uh, prolific 
and how well tolerated, essentially, in many respects, the Klan and a lot of its ideas were uh, 100 years ago. But we began to see the rise of, of some different, and I would say, uh, I would describe as kind of pan-national uh, ideologies uh, in the early 20th century, communism, of course, being one of them, socialism, another. But the one that we're going to focus on, I think, today in large measure was the rise, essentially, of this ideology of fascism. Uh, and that's where I want to turn to uh, Professor Chris Viles at this point. Give us essentially a quick overview, if you can, Chris, of when this became a thing, essentially, in Italy and Germany, and kind of the overarching tenets, essentially, uh, of the ideology itself. Well, yeah, thank you, and thanks, thanks you, thank you for having me. But the the first kind of fascist movement forms in Italy in 1919, the first fa explicitly fascist party. And, um, you know, it spreads from there. But in the 1920s, we're talking about fascism uh, being primarily a Italian thing that's really um, kind of it's the, the term hasn't spread. It really spreads as a kind of a global terminology as an ism outside of the, the indicating something outside of Italy. Um, you know, with um, Hitler's rise to power and Hitler being named chancellor on, in 1933. Um, and then you go from there. But which, as you said, from, you know, talking about the first KKK after the Civil War, we've had the kind of the functional equivalent of fascist movements, um, you know, in the United States and elsewhere around the world, um, even if they don't necessarily call themselves such. Right, and just as a kind of a brief def definitional point here too, um, when we say fascism, at least the word, the the way that kind of scholars tend to think of that term, think of it as a largely as a particular strand of the far right, a particular strand of uh, right wing politics, is not driven so much by kind of a love of, you know, just restoring traditional institutions per se, or, um, you know, free markets or, you know, tax cuts so much. These are not the kind of mobilizing passions of fascists. Mm -hmm. um, with fascists, we're talking about folks who are guided by kind of a highly um, you know, symbolic mythic drive for national renewal, one that's grounded in militarism, male violence, anti-Marxism, racism, authoritarianism, um, and it's actively targeting both kind of national minorities um, and uh, the political left. Um, and there, and, and to just to jump in here real quick, with mm -hmm. respect to both Mussolini's movement as well as Hitler's movement, there is essentially an armed element Mm -hmm. uh, yes. that is affiliated in one fashion, either directly or indirectly, mainly directly, if uh, I'm, I'm just recalling the history of, of the Sturm of Thailand or uh, the, uh, the so-called brown shirts. Um, but that's, that's also kind of been a defining characteristic, essentially, of fascist movements, correct? Yes, in, in a way that it's not for the left, right? You know, so with the Communist Party of the United States or the various kind of socialist parties, sometimes they might form flying brigades to protect their rallies or something like this, but you don't really have, the left is not, the kind of paramilitaries don't necessarily come naturally to the left in the same way that they do to the far right. And that's because of what um, what gets people into fascist movements in the in the first place. I mean, to become a fascist and becoming, or at least, um, to join that kind of movement, and again, this separates them from both the left and elements of, you know, kind of classic conservatism, is that they're driven by desire to kind of feel whole, 
um, by through violence, through punishing your enemies, right? And and through punishing your enemies, feeling like a full human being, restoring your place in the social hierarchy, an elevated place in the higher the social hierarchy, and getting community for yourself in a time and uh, along the way. So violence is really central to why they get into politics in the first place. Is existential for them. It serves a, a deep psychological need um, in a way that is fairly unique to that movement. And we, we have this circumstance in the 1930s where uh, we see the creation of this thing called the German-American Bund. And there's a lot of very famous or infamous imagery uh, of the rally that they held in Madison Square Garden uh, in the 1930s. And I, I guess what I'm trying to kind of refresh my own memory on, did we see the, the, the German-American Bund essentially engage in the kind of uh, street violence um, that we've seen some of the more contemporary groups uh, in America, for example, Patriot Front uh, or the Traditionalist Workers Party, uh, organizations like that. Did we see that out of the Bund itself in that particular period? Um, somewhat, um, but actually in that particular period, if you want to think about the fascist oid movement that was committing a lot more violence and was a lot larger than the Bund, was uh, Coughlin's Christian Front. Um, and uh, Father Coughlin was kind of the first kind of far-right radio guy in the United States, got to start in the, in the 1930s, um, was, would frequently go on air and say that, you know, Mussolini was, or so Hitler was just a defense mechanism against communism. He had millions and millions of radio followers. And in fact, the political left at that time was a lot more afraid of Coughlin than they were of the Bund or Lindbergh or anything like this. Um, but the but the the Coughlinite movement, um, his largely Irish Catholic followers um, that were headquartered mostly in the you know Boston, New York, you know Chicago, they would actively target um, people they like identified or they thought as were Jews like in the streets after so much so that you know, um, Jewish uh, American kind of youth groups started forming to protect their own neighborhoods um, by the late 1930s. But they were a very violent um, group that was also um, targeted by the FBI um, by the late 1930s too. So that back at that time, Boond, yes, um, but the Coglanites much more and the Klan before them even more than that. Yeah, and, and so, um you know, the Second World War leads to the destruction um, of, of the German and fascist and, and imperial Japanese uh, regimes, but the ideology is not killed, correct? I mean, the, the ideology, the idea essentially persists. And, and how does that then begin to kind of manifest itself here in the United States in the, in the post-World War II era? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not killed because, as, you know, as long as you have um, like you have opportunities and you have a culture which allows, you know, white dudes to identify racially as kind of, you know, white in an exalted sense. And also, um, as long as you have kind of, you know, male supremacy, you're going to have a foundation for these movements to start. As long as you have militarism and a culture based around that, you're going to have that. Be that as it may, um, 
the kind of the, you know, from the 1950s and 60s and 70s, we see some fascistoid, you know, mobilization, mainly in the South against with a resurgence of the Klan against the civil rights. Um, but really, you don't have that up until the in, in the United States, again, in the late to the late 20th century, early 20th century, and really kind of expanding with Trump. I mean, arguably, and I, you know, maybe uh, this is the wrong, the Cato Institute's the wrong place to say this, but, you know, when you have the Keynesian era, you don't have the kind of, the same kind of economic anxieties that are like, that are making it easier for, for guys to kind of um, find their way into fascist movements as you do later, so. Yeah, I, I... I'm not an economist, so I don't know that I'm necessarily going to weigh in on that, weigh in on that particular point, but I, I would probably say that there are some additional factors that more than likely kind of played into that as well. Certainly, um, you know, we've, uh, until Donald Trump came along, we never had a president during a presidential debate say to a particular violent group, stand back and stand by. That's certainly uh, absolutely um, un unprecedented in American history. So I, I definitely think we're kind of dealing with a little bit of a different era here. But, you know, thanks thanks for that intro. I wanted to turn to Mike now because um, among us, he is the guy that's actually done undercover work dealing with these kinds of groups. Um, and he has continued to report on them uh, extensively during uh, during his post-FBI career. Mike, give us give us a sense essentially of of what what you saw with respect to the white supremacist movement, because obviously there's a lot of overlap essentially between this this notion of fascism and certainly with respect to Hitler's ideology, um, with respect to racial purity among so-called Aryans and all the rest of that, we, we see an awful lot of that being latched onto and, and embraced and utilized by American white supremacist uh, elements. And that's something that you dealt with in the course of your career. Kind of walk us through essentially what it was like. Uh, first off, kind of give us the boundaries of, of the era that we're talking about, you know, in terms of you know, the 2000s or, or exactly whenever it was. Uh, and what was it like inside the Bureau, essentially trying to work this problem from your perspective? Right. Thanks, Pat. And thanks for having me for this and, and for inviting such knowledgeable guests to talk about these issues. Um, so I, I was in the FBI, joined the FBI in 1988. And uh, in 1992, living in Los Angeles, uh, where I was assigned, uh, there was obviously a lot of civil unrest, very similar to uh, what has gone on recently, resulting from uh, unaccountable police violence targeting Black people and the Black community. So um, white supremacist groups were hoping to take advantage of that unrest to provoke greater violence that they thought would result in a race war. So I spent about 14 months undercover with white supremacist violent white supremacist groups, uh, and then later in the 1990s, uh, worked in far-right militant groups uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it, it, it was fascinating in many ways, but particularly understanding uh, the movement the way they do. You know, um, we're, we're talking before about, you know, 1920s, 1930s, uh, but the strand runs entirely through our history. Uh, and, and they really understood American history in a way that I hadn't been taught in school, you know, even though uh, I, I was raised by an army officer, moved all around the country, got public education in, in a lot of different areas. But, you know, th what they saw was a continuing 
<clears throat> through line from European colonization of the quote unquote new world, uh, which of course was inhabited and wasn't new to the people who lived there, right. uh, all the way through the, the Civil War, through the Jim Crow era, where uh, the, the ideologies and philosophies and theologies that supported white supremacy uh, were still what they adhered to. And while the civil rights movement had sort of pushed these ideologies to the, to the margins of our society, they were still very powerful. And, and there were still a lot of people who adopted them. And particularly, they realized that, that a lot of them were foundational to the state, right? And that's really where I think these conversations get a little... Uh, a little hard to understand where the the relationship between the state and far-right violence is much closer than we often like to discuss in uh in in our political discussions and uh i think that's really an important element that they realize they have support in government and are trying to engage in activities that reinforce that support uh in in a way that when you talk about other groups, it's it's much different, uh, and and in fact, they're far more aggressively targeted by the state when they engage in in less dangerous activities. Yeah, you are doing all of this essentially in kind of the Randy Re uh, Randy Weaver Ruby Ridge uh, era, and this is also the era when when we begin to see um, essentially the emergence of the sovereign citizen movement and. Uh, you know, things of that nature. And one of the seminal uh, tracks, essentially, to come out of that period was a novel by the guy, by a guy by the name of William Pierce, which I know you're very familiar with, The Turner Diaries. And that is something that clearly inspired uh, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols to carry out their uh, act of terrorism against the, uh, the Murrah building in Oklahoma City in April of 1995. Um, at that point, literally the largest domestic terrorism uh, incident uh, in terms of loss of life and property damage in American history. I, what I'm wondering is, you know, how much of things changed in terms of how groups like um, the Oath Keepers, which I'm not sure we can talk about them as much today mm -hmm. because they seem to have been at least somewhat decimated by by the events of of uh, January 6th and things that have flown or that have flowed from that, but. I'm thinking of the three percenters. I'm thinking of Patriot Front. I'm thinking of some of these other groups that have essentially also appeared on the scene in the last several years. I, it has struck me that there seems at some level to be a higher level of organization than what we saw, let's say, in that Randy Weaver, Turner Diaries, you know, kind of period. But am I off on that? I mean, is what, how, how do you see it? Uh, so that's a great question. Um, and I, a part of the problem is, it, you know, from my training as an FBI agent, I try to focus on evidence. And unfortunately, the government doesn't collect objective data about the violence that white supremacists and far-right militant groups engage in. E even to today, they don't count the number of people white supremacists kill in this country each year. So it's so hard because much of this violence is in the dark. Uh, and 
that, that we really don't know how much of it is related to organized white supremacist groups or far-right militant groups where there is a huge overlap. Um, and so does it's he... a little hard to say, but you know, often what we see is, is uh, reporting that's episodic. So some right. event will happen, whether it's some violent attack, like an attack on a synagogue, uh, or just something political. Uh, the first black presidential candidate running for office, where a lot of media attention goes to these crimes. Right. And then it seems like there's an increase where yeah. if you look over time and are following it over 30 years, as I have, you're not seeing that. I think what has been different, though, uh, over the last five or six years is uh, their ability to organize and act in public without law enforcement cracking down on them. And you know, in, in the 1960s and 70s, as the civil rights movement engaged and our, and our country changed and the laws were put in place to protect civil rights, you saw crackdowns on, on the organized groups and they developed what's called a leaderless resistance methodology that you know, they were gonna start separating the above ground activities from the underground criminal activities. And that carried through through most of the 1990s where, where the above ground groups tried to keep an arm's length from the, the criminal elements that were actually engaging in violence. But uh, it, you know, during the time, it, starting in about 2015, you saw these groups engaging in public violence that you know, because of reporters like Stephen and others, it's it's covered. You can see it. You can yeah. watch it. You know, local reporters all across the country were covering this, but you didn't see law enforcement interfering, and that empowered not just a more violent element to come out and commit violence in public. Because you know, if you're a violent person and you know that that violence is looked down on by society, except in this one arena. Of course, let's go into that arena and attack your perceived enemies there or the perceived enemies of the regime uh, that you could get away with that. And so you saw that develop and worse from my perspective as a former federal law enforcement officer, the way they were allowed to travel around the country committing that violence and, and have groups like the Proud Boys that were openly open about their violent intentions and committing violence around the country, but were able to travel from state to state to engage in that violence. And that allowed them to build networks and logistics that you know, were able to mass a huge amount of people uh, in, in Washington, D.C. in order to threaten our the continuity of our government. Well, you, you know, you bring up this whole issue of uh, violence and incitement to violence. And, and I wanted to just kind of uh, take a minute to discuss the Brandenburg uh, v. Ohio decision back in 1969. And for the benefit of our uh, viewers uh, who may not be familiar, Clarence Brandenburg was a Ku Klux Klan member uh, in Ohio uh, in this era. And Brandenburg, um, like pretty much everybody in the Klan in that, in that day, and even up to today, I suppose, engaged in an awful lot of very public, violent, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Black rhetoric. Uh, things of that nature. And Ohio had what was known as a syndicalism law that essentially uh, on its face made that kind of activity and particularly that kind of organizing activity um, illegal. And Brandenburg challenged that and that got all the way up to the Supreme Court. 
And in this decision in 1969, the Supreme Court made a what appears to be a pretty clear distinction between hateful or violent rhetoric on the one hand and an incitement to produce imminent lawless action. Do you think, Mike, in that respect, that the court, you know, drew an appropriate distinction? Do you, do you think that because there, there's been a lot of talk, I personally think they did. Um, I think in order to have a functioning First Amendment, you know, folks have got to be able to uh, to say what's on their mind so long as they don't necessarily represent a direct imminent threat to others. But there have been a number of folks out there uh, on the left and elsewhere have who have been raising questions about whether or not in a, a domestic terrorism context. Um, there needs to be a reexamination of, of whether that decision, you know, is truly in the national interest. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think it is. Uh... It is an effective standard, and I think the um, the concern over First Amendment rights. And you know, I worked at the ACLU for for seven years. Uh, I'm a very staunch defender of, of First Amendment rights, but I think the concern is is overwrought, right? That this shouldn't be very difficult. It wasn't difficult in my cases, right? I didn't really care what ideology a group was following. I was only interested in evidence of criminal activity. And where you have groups that are persistently violent and persistently engaging in dangerous acts, you can focus on those acts. And that's where I, I think that the, the FBI's post 9-11 approach to quote unquote violent extremism posits that there is a direct line from rhetoric to violence when that is actually not very clear. And, and you know, we and, also and, have to go ahead. I was going to say, in fact, there's no published peer reviewed data that I'm aware of that actually supports that position, right? That there is a clear so-called conveyor belt. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and in my personal experience, you know, what I saw was a lot of violent people, people who, who liked engaging in violence, who found a club that appreciated that violence, right? That rather than being attracted by the ideology, they were attracted by the, the uh, celebration of violence. Uh, and, you know, you see this often where somebody moves from uh, a left group to a right group uh, because they want to engage in violence and maybe the group that they initially joined that didn't appreciate that violence as much as a different group and they make these drastic changes that from an ideological perspective would be difficult but if you're just looking at it from the criminality it's easier to understand um yeah. and you, you know the other part of it is we live we live in a, in a society that there is a lot of violent rhetoric right i mean you you can't run for office in this country without you know promoting violence against our foreign enemies yeah. uh, promoting violence against the criminal element in our society promoting violence against the homeless even uh, so, you, you know, what we consider violent rhetoric in the discussion of what we call extremism is actually very mainstream. So, it, you, uh, what I learned doing these cases is that if you have a sharp focus on the criminal activity, you have less opportunity to infringe on the First Amendment. And, and that's unfortunately where, where the FBI has gone wrong in a lot of this, where they focus on the ideology and try to trace who's going to be violent when they don't even count how many people white supremacists kill each year because they're not looking at it as a criminal act first and then understanding the organizations that 
contribute to that perpetuation of violence. Yeah, um, I, I think those are extremely important distinctions. You know, I, I want to bring Stephen uh, Monticelli into this discussion in, in just a moment. But what I want to do for the benefit of our listeners who might be or our viewers, I should say, who might be wondering, uh, you know, what exactly are we talking about um, in, in terms of these groups? And, um, you know, what are they essentially look like, if you will. Uh, and so I'm just going to do a, a quick screen share here in order to uh, try to help illustrate, you know, some of the things that I think are relevant here. Um, this, this particular slide uh, is giving you a sense of, on the, on the top line here, the various right-wing elements that we've been discussing so far, Oath Keepers, that's pretty clear. Uh, this one here is uh, the imagery, uh, iconography, if you will, uh, of the so-called Patriot Front uh, you'll notice here uh, the traditional Roman fasces uh, in, the, in the center uh, with the 13 stars, obviously representing the 13 American colonies. Uh, and I don't think these arrows pointing to the right uh, are an accident. Um, that's certainly my read of it. Uh, over here, this particular symbol is for the so-called three percenters. Again, for, again, the 13 stars for the original colonies. The three percent business comes from a claim that is disputed. Uh, that it was only 3% uh, of the population that actually participated in the American Revolution uh, on, on the side of Jefferson Adams uh, and the rest of the founders. And then finally, uh, on the end here, of course, we have uh, the symbol of the Proud Boys. This was uh, a screen capture I did off of the MSNBC website, uh, literally from the night of the debate uh, between Biden and Trump, when Trump made uh, his, his particular comment to the Proud Boys to quote, stand back and stand by. Uh, the bottom uh, uh, section here has got some of the more interesting ones that I found essentially on the left that I've been following on the left, the Latino Rifle Association. This one is Yellow Peril Tactical. Uh, here, the Socialist Rifle Association. And then finally, a group that I want to spend a little bit of time on, the John Brown Gun Club. I should note that the phrase John Brown Gun Club uh, really essentially denotes um, a number of different chapters that are located across the country that fall under an umbrella uh, movement called Redneck Revolt. Um, and I wanted to kind of bring this to everybody's attention because I think that it, it's really interesting uh, in terms of how um, modern groups, in this case, those that are affiliated with John Brown Gun Club, are drawing upon essentially pre-Civil War, Civil War iconography to kind of uh, buttress their political and ideological arguments. Uh, this is the original daguerreotype from 19 or from excuse me from 1847 uh, that Augustus Washington did uh, of John Brown in Massachusetts. Uh, here he's holding uh, what is reputed to be the flag that he created uh, to denote his own underground railroad type organization. It was apparently uh, slightly different and perhaps more militant uh, than the one that actually existed. And here you can see this is a patch uh, uh, that was developed by a John Brown Gun Club chapter. Um, and you get a sense of, of the attitude here. I don't argue with people that John Brown would have shot. Um, claims of being anti-fascist, anti-capitalist, uh, allegedly pro-worker, pro-Black liberation, uh, and pro-LGBTQ+. Uh, um, not sure that John Brown would necessarily embrace everything here, but I do think it's really interesting that they're essentially drawing on what amounts to kind of that... Um, abolitionist mentality, if you will, from that period uh, and kind of um, reformulating and repackaging it uh, for their own purposes here uh, in the present. Um, we get some additional uh, 
commentary here uh, from the Socialist Rifle Association. This is from their Las Vegas chapter, gun rights or workers' rights, uh, and the Maryland chapter uh, encouraging essentially uh, uh, LGBT, LGBTQA people uh, plus people uh, to go out and buy a gun. Uh, and I did find it very interesting, a better way to A, obviously a Second Amendment reference. Uh, I'm glad that folks on the left have discovered that the Second Amendment is kind of useful. Uh, here we have some folks with the North Georgia SRA out at uh, a range they've uh, been using. Um, you can see here a lot of the kind of equipment that they're employing is very similar to what you see with Oath Keepers uh, or some of these other right-wing elements, same kind of equipment essentially. Uh, and here, and this is the part where I want to begin to bring Stephen Monticelli into the discussion, uh, we have armed anti-fascist. I'm pretty sure that uh, these are probably Elm Fort John Brown Gun Club elements uh, or perhaps some others. Uh, that were in Roanoke, Texas, uh, very recently, just within the last two months, essentially providing what amounts to uh, private security services for a particular uh, business here that was involved in uh, a, a particular event. So, Stephen, I, um, I, I thank you for your patience. You've really been uh, doing a tremendous amount of work on the ground, you know, looking at these movements uh, and what's been happening down there in Texas. How long have you been reporting uh, you know, on this particular issue and on these particular groups. So um, thanks for having me and um, just to echo Mike's comment. Thanks for bringing in some great guests who could provide a range of perspectives on this. So uh, I've been reporting here in Dallas for the past uh, few years and specifically in terms of extremism. Uh, it's been something that's been increasingly my focus, I would say over the past year and a half, two years. Now uh, the flashpoint in Texas uh, that has brought a lot of this into public view over the past several months, um, which includes this event in Roanoke you've cited here, is effectively what I would describe as kind of a campaign uh, against LGBTQ slash drag shows. Um, so a, a large number of groups that are effectively, you know, pushing their ideas that, um, you know, these things are inappropriate for children, uh, and it dovetails with a lot of the concerns around books in schools, CRT, all these sorts of things. And, um, and where, if I could jump in, where are these events taking place? Are these taking place in private homes? Are they mm -hmm. business establishments? Where, where are these events taking place? Great question. So these sorts of events are taking place all over the state. Uh, oftentimes, you know, they're at a, at a restaurant. Uh, sometimes it'll be a pride festival at a park. Other times it'll be a, a LGBTQ pride event at a library. Um, so it, it's a range of locations. Even churches have been targeted uh, for these protests, which almost invariably uh, have attracted Proud Boys, members of militias that are on various sort of extremist lists, and even open neo-Nazis on multiple occasions. Yeah, um, I want to. I want to ask you about uh, some of those specifically. Um, what is this? Uh, this is Texas Freedom Force, and the Texas Defense Force. Are are these private entities? Are they affiliated with the government of Texas in any way? Give us some background on. No. So zooming out a little bit, Texas has, um, as many states have, particularly sort of in the Northwest and the Southwest, a uh, strong strain of militia movements. Um, some of this has been focused on the border. 
Others have been focused in Texas on things like Texas history or kind of Texas nationalism. And uh, these are two distinct entities. So Texas Defense Force is actually a, a licensed private security group that has an armored uh, sort of tactical truck that uh, a machine gun could be mounted on. And uh, they provide security to uh, a number of events, but oftentimes it'll be, you know, sort of conservative uh, political groups. They've been recently providing security to the group that's been organizing the bulk of these anti-LGBTQ protests. Uh, they're known as Protect Texas Kids. The other group that you mentioned, this is Texas Freedom Force. Uh, in 2021, uh, they were uh, labeled by the FBI as an extremist militia. And this goes back to something that was mentioned earlier, January 6th. Uh, one of their members, which basically was disavowed by the organization, uh, was recently sentenced to seven years, over seven years, for his participation in January 6th. They are a group that focuses primarily on Texas history and protecting Texas history, all things Texas, as they say on their website, which includes things like Confederate monuments, uh, the Alamo, and they often show up to sort of protests by groups like, um, you know, in 2020, Black Lives Matter groups. Um, and more recently, they've been some of their members have been showing up to these anti-LGBTQ protests, uh, particularly after uh, groups like Elm Fork John Brown Club and other anti-fascist groups have uh, sort of shown up to provide what they frame as community defense, uh, yeah. which uh professor viles probably um could speak a little bit more on this than i can in terms of the history uh there when it comes to things like the pink panther patrol which called back to the black panthers and the history of them sort of you know uh trying to protect themselves from either state violence or extremist group violence um not unlike the jewish youth leagues that were mentioned earlier yeah well let's 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 go back to that uh chris viles um this this uh strain of of anti-homosexuality uh or essentially sexual identity nonconformism etc um was that also a theme essentially in in Mussolini's Italy or Hitler's Germany or is this something that's more uniquely american uh no it's not more uniquely american but it's and it was always there in fascism but it became i guess more salient um it, from the 1980s on after you have gay what was at the time gay and lesbian movements rising um so yes um with with uh um in the hitler regime kind of infam infamously um puts um, mostly gay men in concentration camps and uh unleashed a pretty horrific wave of persecution against gays and lesbians and it was formally and quite violently homophobic um you know and clamped down what was at the time the the germany was the center of the kind of global um gay lesbian movement at the time mm -hmm. um no but but fast forwarding kind of um homophobic rhetoric and homophobic kind of violent action has but become much more um salient in the kind of post-war um neo-nazi right and then the, the the far right now and the neo-fascist now than it was at the time much like they're much more anti-feminist now anti-feminism has become much more central to what the far right does now and the these kind of you know paramilitaries do now um and mainly because you know the the feminist movement and um, LGBTQ plus movements are much more central to the left than they were back in the you know the 20s, 30s, 40s, which was mostly right. focused on class-based movements. Right. 
So jump uh, in real quickly, I also <laughs> want to make sure we remember that one of the first infamous book burnings by the Nazis uh, was a number of uh, books into trans research, basically some of the earliest pioneering research into transgender research. Um, so, you know, I think it it is something that we're, you know, seeing a lot of echoes, hearing a lot of echoes rather. And um, I, I do agree that it's become particularly salient in uh, places where maybe there's been perceived wins uh, in the civil rights realm. Um, and so, you know, there's perhaps a, a backlash aspect to it as well. Well, that's a great point. And, and thanks for that additional historical uh, background, both of you. What I what I've got here is a question from uh, uh, a, a person uh, who is anonymous in this particular circumstance. And, and this is it. Have any of the listed left wing groups ever been verified to have committed any violent action in the name of their respective group affiliations? If so, can you provide a link to publicly verifiable sources? Thanks for your time and effort. You know, when I when I think about um, left wing violence, the, the first thing that comes to my mind, essentially, um, is the black bloc anarchist, for example, uh, and some of the kinds of violent acts. Uh, and I, I guess I would make a distinction between um, vandalism, which, you know, they're very, very uh, infamous for, if you will, uh, and the kind of thing that we witnessed on January the 6th. I think they, they most definitely, in my mind at least, they most definitely fall into two different categories. But Black Bloc anarchists were involved in, in Portland uh, and have been involved in Portland for a particularly long period of time. But I think in, in a larger context, what this person is trying to ask essentially is, when there's violence, when, when there is a violent confrontation, who's usually starting it? If, in other words, if, if, we have, if we happen to have as a hypothetical, maybe this is not so hypothetical, uh, when we look at some examples here, I'll go back to Sacramento in 2014. I believe that's when this happened. Uh, the Traditionalist Workers Party was going to be conducting um, some kind of a so-called protest uh, at or near the state capitol. And a large group uh, of anti-fascists apparently discovered that. And there was a confrontation there that resulted, I believe, in at least one or two deaths and a number of folks uh, getting, getting injured. And at that particular confrontation, in that particular case, the anti-fascists, at least according to the press accounts at the time, outnumbered the traditionalist worker party types by about 10 to one. Um, I think we saw a very different situation in Charlottesville in 2017 um, uh, with a tragic death there uh, uh, of an anti-fascist uh, or anti-white supremacist activist. So how, how common is this? Mike, you've alluded to the difficulty of trying to, uh, to get a handle on specific numbers in many cases because DOJ is not keeping track of this kind of stuff the way they keep track of homicides. Um, what what's the sense of of all of you about you know where this is uh, where this kind of plays out in terms of the of the totality of it? You know who who starts this stuff uh, or does it just depend on the local situation? Well, I'll start if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. You know because I do think that there is a a high risk of. Uh, creating a false equivalency between these groups. Far-right militia groups have a long history of committing violence in the United States, and that history is persistent up to the present day. And if we're looking at this from a, 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 a criminal uh, activity, it's, it's far greater, far more widespread, and far more dangerous to our society because it works often hand in glove with law enforcement. And, you know, just as on January 6th, we saw, you know, an inordinate number of 
law enforcement personnel participating in the riot, you know, that that problem it creates a, a, a greater danger to society because the police are are you can look at any of the data with from use of force to stop and frisk to uh, uh, arrests and, and prosecutions disproportionately target uh, communities of color. Uh, so when when they are seen openly collaborating with these groups that are committing illegal violence against these same communities, it, it raises the problem of what do these communities do? And of course, what they need to do if the, if the state isn't protecting them, if their local police aren't protecting them, is to protect themselves. And so it's natural to want to uh, develop skills so that you can do that sort of community self-protection. And when you look at the tactics that the far-right militant groups use, uh, you know, and what I was being trained in as uh, a young undercover agent uh, being trained by neo-Nazis and how to commit terrorism, you know, these above ground um, public events are intended to provoke violence. So they're going there saying they're doing a rally, but they are prepared for the violence because they are specifically targeting communities they know oppose their messaging with the purpose of drawing out opposition that they can then attack. And part of what they're doing is using that opportunity to create visibility to show that the state is not opposing them so that they can recruit far more local members who can then commit underground violence against these same communities. So it's a very dangerous type of activity when the police are not aggressively policing it. And unfortunately, what we've seen over the past six or seven years is, is the police standing back and letting that violence occur, which of course creates a necessity for community self-defense. This Chris, is Chris, Chris Viles, does that, does Mike's narrative essentially kind of track with what you found in, in, in your historical research on this topic? Yeah, I mean, like, I think Mike, like what Mike said really well was that, you know, what, what, whether you're dealing with the Sturmabteilung and the Hitler's essay, basically, or you're dealing with the Klan in the 20s, they like to take it to the enemy neighborhood, right? They like to go into the red neighborhoods, like they like to, like in the case of the SA, or go into immigrant neighborhoods like the 20s Klan, um, or African-American neighborhoods, or, you know, into Portland, Oregon, if you're the Proud Boys, they like to go into places where they're going to provoke a fight, right? And so I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of cautious about any kind of equivalence, right, between the two. And I don't think that's, you know, what, what um, you know, you were suggesting, um, Patrick, either. But, um, you know, like it, it, you have to look at why, why do people get armed? You know, what's the, what's the kind of the mobilizing passions for why people are getting armed? Um, you know, I think there's a big difference between, say, you know, yellow peril tactical that's getting, you know, armed in a back against a backdrop of rising anti-Asian violence in the United States and the Proud Boys, right, um, you know, and to kind of march on with the Oath Keepers who are, you know, storming the Capitol for, you know, to, to uh, um, prevent the transfer of power. I mean, there's no 
there was no John Brown Gun Club in um, 2016 um, to kind of storm the Capitol when Hillary Clinton lost the Electoral College, <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's not just because two sides wear helmets and have guns doesn't mean they're the same. Just because you know um, GIs yeah. in World War II in the United States and and in Germany both had helmets and shot at each other doesn't mean they're the same. Yeah, I I I, I take your points, but I think. You know, one of the things that I'm concerned about, and I want to go back to Stephen because uh, he's so on the ground with this. One of the concerns that I have is that um, I, I've seen plenty on social media, uh, not just by the Elm Fort John Brown Gun Club, but others, um, where when they have a successful confrontation, um, you know, with these uh, right wing type elements, and it's it's frequently Proud Boys, uh, from what I can tell, but that it's not exclusively that that they, they celebrate the fact that they've managed to run them off uh, from you know, trying to essentially go into a, a business. And we should be clear, and if you take a look at Stephen's reporting, I think he is very clear. Uh, in many cases, you know, these, these particular drag shows or related events are, are being hosted by private businesses, right? I mean, they, they, the owners have the right in that respect you know, to put on whatever program they want to. Um, and so when they're reaching out for security assistance, essentially, I think that's what happens in many of these cases, and Stephen will correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> um, the thing that I, that I think I'm concerned with in kind of the macro context is what happens one of these days when the right wing thugs don't back down and they come with guns and somebody starts shooting. And I think this gets to Mike's point about police not doing the job of making sure that that can never happen or that it doesn't have the chance of kind of escalating to that. But I, I do think that that is one of the major things that I worry about here. And I don't think that it has, you know, a quick cut and dried solution necessarily. But I do worry about a circumstance in which we wind up having ideological armed militias that get into a firefight on the street of an American city, because it won't just be members of those militias that wind up getting wounded and killed. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be people in the community around them. Um, so I, I think that's one of the number one concerns that I have, it, that even in the name of self-defense, which I completely get, um, I totally understand, especially you know, if, if you're a uh, non-heterosexual person, um, and you are being threatened by people around you, I totally understand why you would go out and get a gun. I've been a gun owner my entire adult life, and I support any law-abiding citizen's right to go out and arm themselves uh, for purposes of self-defense, you know, where, where the local laws necessarily allow. But this issue of, of having two armed groups, essentially, you know, potentially getting into a shootout is, is one that I think we kind of dismiss or downplay, I think, at our peril. Now, at the same time, Stephen, you've seen a fairly clear pattern, I think, where you are down there in Texas. Talk to us about, and I'm really interested to hear more about uh, Protect Texas Kids and, and particularly this individual, Kelly Neidert. Give us a sense of, is she like the major driving force behind her organization? Are they the major driving force for a lot of these incidents that we're seeing that you've been reporting on? So uh, that's correct. This is a group that has basically been the main organizing group. It's not the only group. There have uh, been other sort of nonprofits that have emerged in recent months that are also doing this work. Uh, but I think you need to best understand them as a part of a broader sort of network or movement of people, particularly given that they are being funded by people that 
you know, due to lack of transparency laws around certain types of nonprofits, we don't really know. Um, now, if you look at just the data around her events, uh, Jay Ufedler, I probably butchered that name, but he's based out of the Nonviolence Action Lab. He also works with the Harvard Car Center and Crowd Counting. Uh, and he's described these uh, protests that she organizes and promotes as, quote, unusually violent. Um, this has a, These protests have occurred amidst another statistical spike in sort of mobilizations against LGBTQ-related events. Um, it's not just drag shows, to be clear. Um, and, you know, several years ago, drag shows were occurring, like, in places in Austin and Dallas and stuff without the same sort of fanfare. Um, so it is a part of a broader movement. There's being money being spent. There's, uh, you know, press being uh, written up about these events from very sympathetic perspectives. And time and again, those accounts either totally lack any mention of or discount the presence of groups like the Proud Boys, uh, militias, neo-Nazis, and they certainly do not document any of the violence that occurs. Now, uh, the violence that's occurred thus far, it's not shootouts. You would have heard about that. And, and to be clear, we've already had those sorts of instances that you've described in the United States um, over the past several years uh, in places like Portland. Uh, you know, we have had a huge legal case about one individual who, you know, he was found not guilty. And in these instances, yeah, the policing breaks down. Um, and in those instances, there haven't necessarily been sort of equivalencies of organized armed groups standing off against each other. Um, and and it's been limited in terms of how many people have been, you know, sort of mortally injured. But the fear, I think, perhaps is well placed. And it and I think it needs to be understood, understood in terms of the context of who is the aggressor or who is on the offense in these situations, as Chris and Mike have described. Um, you know, going outside of a drag show is a choice that people make. And if they choose to bring weapons with them, that also sends a statement about what their intentions are. They claim that they are responding to the anti-fascists, and yet they're the ones who are taking their Sundays and their Saturdays to go and hold signs that say things that I wouldn't even repeat here. Um, so and, and, there's and Stephen, yes. Stephen, Stephen, isn't it the case that in in some of these circumstances, the owners of some of these businesses <clears throat> that have elected to hold these drag shows or you know related activities? have actually directly asked for the assistance of, let's say, the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club or related groups? Um, so I, there's, I been in, there's been instances where, like, say, uh, there was a protest in Dallas for abortion rights where that actually did happen. And they also informed the police that they were holding this protest. And so they had two forms of security. And there was even an instance in that protest where a man ran up on the stage uh, at the park where it concluded and made a death threat to one of the organizers. And the police didn't stop him. They didn't arrest him or anything. And he ran off. Where, that could where be cast. Where did Sorry. this happen? Where, this where, happened where, in where, Dallas. This was in Dallas. This was in Dallas. And I reported on these events. I was there. Um, and so at these other events, uh, it hasn't been the case where they've phoned up the John Brown Gun Club and said, hey, we're going to pay you for private security because they are not a licensed private security organization. Right. It is more of it, the instance where uh, an organization, a business announces they're having an event. That event catches the eye of certain individuals who are either activists or in right-wing media. They promote these events on their channels and say they need to be shut down or 
you know, some very sort of insightful language about them, calling people pedophiles or groomers. And then they draw out the attention of these extremists. And so as a reaction to the, those sorts of events, these anti-fascist groups and others like the Unforked John Brown Club will basically show up voluntarily, uh, but they will often communicate their intentions to just be outside. And I don't believe there's ever been an instance where a business has said, we don't want you here and they have chosen to stay anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, generally speaking, in the aftermath of these events, the presence of people to basically uh, be a buffer against the more extreme people who are hurling slurs and threats and even engaging in minor violence, um, they're thankful. They're grateful for the presence of these organizations because unfortunately the police tend to have a bit of a hands-off approach at these events if they're even present. And I think part of the challenge here is because um, over the past you know, five, six, seven years, a lot of this activity undertaken by these extremist groups on the right has been cast under the guise of First Amendment activity. Now, I'm a journalist. The First Amendment is very important to me. Um, I have had some legal issues where someone tried to sue me for things that were true, and I won, and I'm very thankful for the First Amendment. Now, um, violence isn't a part of the First Amendment, uh, and a part of why Texas is such a laboratory down here is because we have our enhanced Second Amendment, where you can do free speech and carry around a gun without a license. And, you know, that may increase the risk of the temperature rising to, you know, a breaking point. Um, I haven't seen, in my experience at any of these events, a group like the Umfork John Brown Club or any of those sorts of groups um, acting as an antagonist. They are always trying to de-escalate. They record their activities. And they usually post this stuff after the fact to basically say this is what's happened. Um, and so in those instances, I've never really been afraid of, you know, is someone going to raise a gun and, and start shooting? Um, what I have been afraid of is, you know, people engaging in sort of minor violence or um, fisticuffs and that sort of escalating with bear mace. And then that that escalating right. to right. a gun being used. Right. Um, there's a there's a there's a sort of set of things that have to happen in order for the bullets to start flying. And usually by that point in time, it's been like a total breakdown of security uh, practices and policing. And let, let Mike, let's go back to that issue because I know you and I have talked about this uh, on, on a number of occasions uh, privately and occasionally, you know, even publicly, but one of the more disturbing things that we have learned uh, with respect to the January 6th related investigations is that while the number of individuals that have been associated with, let's say, the Proud Boys or the, the Oath Keepers, as a percentage of the folks who've been indicted um, by the Justice Department in connection with January 6th, they're only about in the 6 or 7% range. But because of their training and their skill set and all the rest of that, they kind of, in that regard at least, they represented a clear outsized threat. And the Proud Boys were a spearhead. And of course, the Oath Keepers were heavily involved and all the rest of that. Um, but there are also folks in law enforcement <laughs> um, who have been uh, indicted, and if not, uh, several have already pled out, uh, as, I, as I recall. How much of a threat do you think we have in that respect? And, and I'm asking you to think about this both at the local, state, and federal level. How much, how much of, of this element, this kind of right-wing, white supremacist element, 
do you think we actually have overall in law enforcement? Or are we talking about essentially a lot of, at the state and local level, a lot of regional variation? Um, and do we have to approach the problem differently if that's the case? Um, I, I don't think it's a regional problem. I think it's a nationwide problem. You know, we've seen police officers who were arrested who are from New York City and 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 other or, or New York State and other places around the country, pretty well distributed. And and we've seen the uh, participation in in white supremacist or far right militant groups around the country by law enforcement here in California. Uh, for instance, so it's it's a nationwide problem, and the prof I can't really give you any data <clears throat> because nobody actually covers it, right? That even though in the 1992 when I went undercover uh, in a neo-Nazi uh, group, the FBI management warned us on the task force, which included state and local law enforcement, uh, that we have to be very careful with this operation, not even to share it within our own law enforcement agencies, because there is known sympathies for these groups within law enforcement. So that that warning has been uh, given to agents over 25 years. Uh, it, in the 2015 FBI counterterrorism guide, it explicitly warns agents working domestic terrorism investigations against white supremacists and far-right militants that the subjects of their investigations, you know, so these aren't just people who have white supremacist ideas or, uh, you know, engage in, in militia groups that don't engage in violence. These are subjects of domestic terrorist investigations often have active links to law enforcement. That's in black and white in the FBI's counterterrorism guide. And yet the FBI has no program to protect the public from these white supremacist police officers. Uh, and it's it's fascinating because in 2020, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin held a hearing in, in the House Oversight Committee, the subcommittee he runs, into this problem, white supremacists within law enforcement. And he asked the FBI to update their intelligence. There's a public uh, report from 2006 on this topic. He asked the FBI to update that intelligence and testify at the hearing. Uh, behind closed doors, the FBI disavowed their own intelligence and refused to testify. Uh, obviously, January 6th happens three months later, showing the prevalence of law enforcement within these uh, groups and within the illegal activity they perpetrate. Uh, and yet the FBI persists in saying this isn't a problem, even as its own agents reported up in, in uh, February of 2021, after the attacks, a new report was issued internally within the FBI that leaked, that was basically what Representative Raskin had asked for six months previous. So the agents on the ground and the analysts are identifying this problem, but FBI management doesn't want to see it. And, you know, you may have seen just recently uh, uh, an email, an internal email from the FBI was released through a Freedom of Information Act request uh, that an agent was talking to the deputy director of the FBI in this email saying 70% of the Joint Terrorism Task Force is sympathetic to the rioters on January 6th and 75% of the, uh, the uh, operation as a whole. So this problem isn't just state and local law enforcement it's often off 
uh, also federal law enforcement. And I think if you look at the way the January 6 cases were charged, initially the, the Justice Department and the FBI focused on charging misdemeanors. Yeah. You know, people who had trespassed into the Capitol rather right. than people who had committed violent acts outside the Capitol against right. police officers. And I think that created a misperception about what this was because the bulk of the charges initially are misdemeanors that aren't uncommon in other kinds of protest activities. And I think that's the way the Justice Department or many in the Justice Department and the FBI were seeing that act as uh, a rally that got out of control, people who, uh, you know, were otherwise good citizens, but um, uh, got out of hand uh, in one day, rather than recognizing this was part of a, a years-long continuum of violence orchestrated by different groups as they built the network that was able to bring so many people out. And, you know, there was a Washington Post report that said there were dozens, that was the, the word they used, of, of people at the Capitol who were on the terrorist watch list. You know, where, where do dozens of watch listed people gather that the FBI doesn't take notice? You know, it, it right. I think shows a blind spot that, that and and even in the discussions afterwards, right? We don't talk about all those white supremacists, violent white supremacists that were present. They they're kind of not really mentioned until uh, somebody has been charged, and and you know, in the sentencing, they'll say, "Oh, by the way, this person was also part of a white supremacist group," rather than recognizing that they didn't get there by accident. You know, they didn't just happen to be in D.C. that day. Right. You know, there was a network established that was able to bring everybody there for a purpose. Yeah. One of the interesting things I think about <clears throat> about DOJ and, and the FBI also, though, is, you know, the incentive structure. Right. I mean, we have we have literally a coercive plea bargaining industry. Um. And and my uh, my colleague, my boss, uh, Clark Neely, actually has written about this extensively. And I think when you look at the incentive structures here, um, I, I definitely think you've got a point and I, I agree with it. But I think an awful lot of what they were doing at the beginning of this was going after basically low hanging fruit that they could basically just quickly turn and, and point to, you know, from a statistical standpoint, because we both know that the DOJ and especially the Bureau are kind of obsessed with statistics, um, sometimes to the point of actually, you know, missing the larger picture, which is what I think you're kind of talking about here. But that's that's one of the one of the things that I worry about essentially are those institutional drivers. And I guess in that larger context, um, what what if anything can actually be done, you know, to deal with that? I I know that within the military, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, it is absolutely expressly forbidden for individuals to get involved with these kinds of groups, whether it's being a member, donating money, showing up you know, to an event, all the rest of that, that is actionable under the UCMJ. Just no question about it. But we don't have any kind of, and maybe I'm wrong, if I am wrong, correct me. It, it strikes me that if there is any kind of suitability criteria uh, for federal law enforcement officers to not be involved with those kinds of organizations, if there is that kind of suitability criteria, it's not being enforced. Am I off base on that or? Uh, no, it, it, and you know, even 
even though there are those rules in the military, obviously they were current and former members of the military that participated yeah. in January 6th and participated in Charlottesville yeah. uh, in the Unite the Right uh, violence. So, you know, th this is a societal problem and the military and law enforcement recruit people from our society. So, you know, unfortunately, this is, is a significant or, or a, you know, this is a part of our society. And so it exists in every institution. And that's what's the difficulty in in correcting it, because you have a system, you know, that that isn't just, uh, you know, the disproportionate uh, uh, number of white males in the FBI, for example. That's also true in the courts. It's also true in corporate America, in corporate boards, right? This is a, a social problem that we tend to to deny. I mean, I think a lot of the uh, the anti-critical race theory uh, nonsense that's going on is is trying. You know, I think is an example of how much our society as a whole doesn't want to wrestle with some really legitimate ideas and legitimate parts of our history uh, and would rather just seek that denial because once you recognize it, uh, it's become it, it's harder than to uh, to ignore and to not correct. And and I think that's why, I mean, one of the things the Brennan Center has been promoting is we need to have objective data collection. And that's really because that will drive the the reforms, right? If we don't know how many people white supremacists kill, it's easy yeah. then to open FBI investigations against groups that aren't engaging in 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 proportionate amounts of violence because you don't have that data. Where if you have the data that shows, and private groups who collect this data often do show this, that white supremacists and far right militia groups are far more violent than any other groups. And as you mentioned, even when there is violence on groups that are described as leftists, it tends to be property crimes and lower level crimes that the FBI disproportionately focuses on, where, you know, and there are any number of examples. And my concern is that with this kind of false equivalence, you know, if you look and and uh, Professor Viles probably has, uh, can, can articulate this better than I could, but if you look at sort of the growth of authoritarian movements and authoritarian regimes, this is a tactics that's used, right? There's there's this, uh, a sanctioning of political violence by your supporters against your political enemies, and the public gets sick of that violence and demands a crackdown that then creates these authoritarian laws that are used disproportionately against the leftist groups to cement a, a the, the authoritarian establishment. And those far right elements that engage in the violence, the regime focused elements then just being are incorporated into the state security apparatus. So it becomes part of the state. And, and you, that's where I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, the, the worry about left groups getting armed is going to drive that kind of, of reform that actually creates more harm than good. Chris, your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, that's well, first of all, um, I've just kind of been blown away in this discussion. Uh, maybe I'm naive that like the, the FBI does not track the number of um, white supremacist <laughs> murders. I mean, the FBI is a large organization. I'm, I'm just, it seems like that would be easy to do. Um, but may, again, maybe I'm, I'm naive there. But I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a legal scholar, you know, and so I can't really, but I'm, I'm not aware of any kind of uh, much in the United States when I'm thinking about the kind of the major mobilization of the right, the, you know, the 20s clan, the Coglinite movement in the 30s, the, um, the, the second, the third clan against the um, civil rights movement um, later on, and, you know, the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys today. I'm, I'm not, a, like, again, with the caveat, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not aware of some kind of ma massive legal, legal apparatus stepping in to kind of control those organizations, you know, in any way, shape or form. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like that happens. I mean, those, those organizations oftentimes fizzle out and sometimes their violence does turn off the public, um, you know, but uh, again, I'm not aware of laws, major laws that were passed to curb that kind of violence. Stephen, you've been, um... Uh, doing a lot of work down there, you know, looking at, at the police response um, to a lot of these particular incidents. And how many incidents um, where we've had these would-be confrontations, if you will, between, let's say, an Elm Fork John Brown gun club offering essentially de facto security services uh, at a particular event and some Proud Boy elements showing up how many times have the cops on scene, in essence, intervened in any way, shape, or form uh, to, to try to keep the sides apart and, and, to, and to maintain order where it doesn't get out of control? There have been uh, some very limited cases of this. Um, so in Roanoke, there were a few instances where the police did step in. I captured one of those on video where two men who were protesting the drag event uh, got in the faces of some of the security folks. They had used some vulgar language previously and um, then tried to basically go complain to the police when they alleged that someone spit on them. Um, and the police basically told them, you need to go to the other side. You need to calm down. Like, what are you doing over here? You don't have any real purpose to be over here uh, because it was pretty clear that they were just trying to stir the pot yeah. and stir things up. But there have been never any instances at any of these events where the police have issued a citation um, or arrested anyone. I believe it's illegal to carry a bat wrapped in barbed wire in public. I believe that's illegal um, according to the Texas Penal Code, but no one who has done that um, was ever you know, given a citation for that, even though they were standing there menacingly with a mask on. And, and was, um, that, was that a Patriot Front guy? Is that no, he was a member of This Is Texas Freedom Force. I've identified him. Incidentally, okay. he has a, an interesting, there's an interesting photo of him holding a, a replica gun from the movie Tremors, uh, handing it to um, Representative Brian Slayton, Texas State Representative Brian Slayton. And he's the one who's been trying to lead the charge about criminalizing drag shows that are quote unquote family friendly or, you know, um, allow people to bring their kids. And, um, you know, he is kind of one of these politicians who appears to have some interconnections or linkages to some of these groups that have been mobilizing these activities on the ground. Um, in terms of like sort of the tacit approval of this violence or sort of the, you know, state police apparatus, you know, I don't have any evidence to suggest that any of the members of the police forces around here are, 
you know, sort of cooperating with these groups or are actively members of these groups. But I would suspect that the sort of sympathies or the deference is likely there. Uh, it's it's very clearly here in the political um, sort of apparatus where the Texas GOP responded to one of my tweets about, um, you know, sort of these targeting of these LGBTQ events. And I brought up to them that neo-Nazis had shown up to a drag show that they had specifically promoted outrage about on their social media accounts. And their only response to it was, I quote, um, we stand with the vast majority of Texans who oppose the overt sexualization of children and encourage our members to avoid businesses who sponsored events that groom children. Um, this okay. is in response to me saying, do you have anything to say, you know, simply, you could simply just say Nazis are bad uh, because we usually have a movie that comes out about every five years um, that celebrates that. It's like an American tradition, but we're having some trouble in the state of Texas when it comes to openly sort of disavowing these groups that are participating in not only really vulgar, bigoted rhetoric, but violence. So what I want to make sure that that, that I understand and our, our audience understands what you're saying is that there is a, a particular member of the Texas state legislature who is interested in getting legislation passed that would force Texas businesses, privately held companies, to essentially refuse to host events, even if the owner of the business is inclined to do so. Do, do That's I, correct. Do I, do, okay. That's so, correct. So the event in Roanoke, to be clear, was hosted by the owners of the uh, the location, the business, and their one of their children, adult children, but you know, one of their family was one of the performers. So it was like a celebration of their, you know, family and a joyful sort of thing in their eyes. And that would have been, yes, illegal under this proposed code. So what, uh, and, effect, what, and effectively, it also would push certain sort of drag performers out of public life because if a drag performer is near a child, that could potentially be sort of inferred as a, a performance for for a child. So, what if anything has the Texas Chamber of Commerce or other um, other associations representing Texas businesses? What have they? What if anything have they had to say about about this? That is a good question that I don't have a good answer to. Um, I don't want to say anything incorrect, so I don't want to say that they haven't responded, but I sure haven't heard much about it. Yeah, I, I, I would certainly think that that would be something worth pursuing. I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but I, I as somebody who follows your work, I would certainly be very interested uh, in hearing you know what they have to say about that because I that, think so. Yeah, that that strikes me as something that. Uh, could easily number one, I just find it completely obnoxious um, on its face. But in a larger context, it could set a precedent um, that could potentially be used to try to criminalize any other behavior that uh, you know particular political uh, party on either side you know necessarily finds objectionable. We've certainly had uh, a very unhappy history uh, in our country um, with that kind of activity. That that's I think that's pretty much beyond dispute. Um, we um we're getting relatively uh, short on time here. Um, some of the questions I'm afraid that we're not really in a position to answer because they are asking about other organizations 
that track this kind of thing, such as the Southern Poverty Law Center and some others. So I, I apologize, uh, Cato really can't speak uh, for what those organizations are doing here. Um, and I, I want to make sure that that we've covered, uh, you know, some of the most important things here. And specifically, Mike, uh, you and one of your colleagues at the Brennan Center uh, came up with a series of recommendations as they pertain to the FBI. You published that, if I recall, earlier this year. Uh, I think it was just over the summer. Right. Um, tell us, tell us, you know, what motivated you all to kind of uh, make those recommendations and essentially kind of what's what's the core of those recommendations and how would it how would it play essentially here in, in the arena that we've been discussing? Sure. So, you know, having seen the transition the FBI made post 9-11, trying to become a domestic intelligence agency primarily that did law enforcement rather than a law enforcement that did uh, criminal intelligence and foreign counterintelligence work, um, I saw that the, the readoption of this uh, very flawed and and disproven theory of radicalization. This idea that you know people get bad ideas and then they commit violence, uh, which justifies a huge surveillance apparatus. Mm -hmm. Right? If we know the ideas are are the origin of the violence, suppressing the ideas is an effective counterterrorism message, and that suppression could be through arrests, through surveillance, through policing activities and intelligence activities. And uh, from a security standpoint, that's just severely flawed, right? There are a lot of people out there saying things we don't like, we disagree with, we think are dangerous. Uh, and particularly when you get an ag agency that is predominantly white and predominantly male and predominantly conservative, they have particular ideas about which, uh, or particular concerns about which ideas are, are more dangerous than others. Um, but it's also just flawed methodology, right? Like you said earlier, there isn't any evidence that, and, and in my own experience undercover, a lot of the people who really understood the ideology were oppositional to violence and particularly criminal violence, you know, that, hey, that doesn't make us look good, that hurts our movement, that makes us criminals rather than political operatives. And they would tell me, you know, quit hanging around with the idiots you're hanging around with and put a suit on and we're going to run you for the school board. And that's how we're going to change things. Uh, so, you know, which not is what recognizing the Proud Boys, that. Yeah, which is what the Proud Boys are doing right now. We started right, exactly. So, so um, what the what the paper argues is the FBI has to get back to tracking the criminal activity and focusing on the criminal activity and working up, right? If you looked at yeah. If the FBI had been tracking the Proud Boys criminal activity across the country for the four years before the attack on January 6th, they would have known these people, right? These aren't people who were unknown to the reporters who were who were covering the violence. These are people who were promoting their previous violence to, to establish leadership positions in the organization. So, you know, once that evidence is secured, it's a lot easier to make the connections to connect the dots than it is to start from people right. engaging in rhetoric and then trying to figure out which of them might ultimately commit a crime. Chris Viles, um, I'm quite sure that you are continuing, you know, to track these developments and 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 the evolution, essentially, um, of, of these uh, domestic fascist uh, movements that we have been discussing over the course of the last hour and a half. Does anything pop out to you particularly in terms of trends um, 
with respect to what's happened, you know, since January 6th? What, what, if anything, do you see is different now uh, in, in terms of, of the potential, uh, you know, threat uh, of violence uh, and related uh, politically motivated violence uh, in that area? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly dark stuff. I mean, I think even when I did the book Haunted by Hitler in 2014, I published the first book on kind of the you know, fight against fascism back then. I didn't, I didn't imagine things would accelerate this fast. I, didn't, well, I wasn't actually thinking that there was going to be a palpable threat of a fascist takeover in the United States, and that wasn't what was um, motivating my work. And I don't, I don't, still don't know if still we're there, there yet. But I think what's, what really is striking, and this is, you don't need a scholar on fascism to tell you this, is just the the, the large percentage of the population that is willing that has this infrastructure in place to accept um, an authoritarian overthrow of a, an illegal elect, a legal election. And I will say this just from, from history too, is that you don't need a majority of a, a given pu national public to support um, a, a coup d'etat you know, or, a, you know, fascist takeover. I mean, fascists tend to come to power not when they win elections, but they come to power when they lose elections and then they reroute by force, right? Um, either being through some parliamentary maneuver like in Italy and Germany um, or through a coup d'etat like in Spain, they tend to come to power after they lose an election and you only really need 30, 35% of them to support. Uh, you know, the Nazi party at its peak got 30, I believe it was 35% of the vote in November, 1932, 35%. So you don't, they, they never need a majority. And I guess, uh, we've, we've got that one third of the population that's got the authoritarian infrastructure in place in their brains to accept a logic of that, even though the logic of an authoritarian takeover in the United States would be a little bit different in Germany and Italy, because in the United States, it would go along the lines of a stolen election thing, which still philosophically accepts democracy, but just says that, you know, it's, it's been illegitimate, you know, the, the pure fascist philosophically reject democracy, as does Roger Stone and some and, and Bannon. They, they're openly okay with overthrowing an election in which they know they lost, right? So those elements are there. But in the United States, it, we would we would probably see it um, if we're, we're the, if we're talking about that, taking that the kind of um, the line of a stolen election, obviously, rather than a the philosophical rejection of parliaments. So Stephen Monticelli, Texas, I, I really do believe in many respects is kind of ground zero for an awful lot uh, of what we're seeing here. Um, I know it's difficult to, you know, have a crystal ball necessarily, but within Texas, with respect to what you've been seeing um, with this, you know, attack essentially on non-heterosexual uh, people and, and their identities, how do you see that playing out um, over the next six months or 12 months? How do you see it playing out on the streets and how do you see it playing out politically? Well, I believe these events that we uh, have been discussing today will continue to play out and they'll continue to play a role of sort of outrage bait for uh, the base audience that they're being you know, put, put out for basically to continue to get people to support what I would say are more uh, state backed forms of oppression such as uh, a bill or rather a policy that was uh, recently approved in my hometown public school board, uh, Grapevine Colleyville, 
which I wrote an article about, uh, which I described it as the don't say trans policy, because it basically says if you ever use any terminology related to quote unquote gender fluidity, you're fired or it's not allowed as a teacher. And that puts a lot of people in a lot of difficult positions, especially you know, when you talk about that there are youth, you know, there are young people who are grappling with their identities and, you know, that sort of uh, information may be useful for them. Um, and so it's 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 something that I think we'll continue to see uh, picked up in terms of, you know, bills, proposals, and a lot depends on how the elections play out, um, you know, in the coming weeks. Will we see, uh, you know, as some have projected or telegraphed, uh, an attack on gay marriage. Uh, may we see some, you know, other sorts of attacks on, you know, like, for example, the fact that we still in some states have sodomy laws. Um, so I think these sorts of things will continue to be the sort of red meat that will drive the outrage, um, because that is a lot of what this is. It's, you know, unfortunately, bigotry and hate and prejudice wrapped up into a political platform. And um, I think we'll also see continued resistance to it particularly if, um, you know, the law enforcement doesn't take it super seriously um, because the criminality is there. If, you know, any of the local police departments want to know about how many of these events these Proud Boys have been to and, you know, some information about them, I haven't gotten a call from any of them. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think until it's taken a bit more seriously because there is violence occurring, that uh, these community groups, these sort of activist groups will continue to use uh, the opportunity to spread their messages as well, which their messages are basically, you know, leave these people alone and that, you know, these people will hopefully defend themselves if you choose not to. Um, and I really certainly ho don't hope that we see any further sort of escalations in, in sort of the types of violence that we're seeing on the ground because, you know, we haven't seen any death and I, I pray that that continues to be the same. Um, but as I said, you know, the next few weeks and months uh, will probably be critical in terms of what that will look like for people who live here, because uh, as you may have seen in the news, there are people who, you know, view these developments and they think I need to leave the state yeah. and they need to move somewhere else. And that's pretty tragic because, you know, not everybody has that ability financially or, right. you know, they have to support their families and they can't do that. And that's what we're really dealing with right now. I know this is a very sensitive question. If you want to dodge it, feel free. But, um, you know, given what you've been reporting on, have you personally been threatened by any of these elements? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have videos uh, where there's a police officer standing next to me. I say, that, you know, these are members of the Proud Boys. Do you know that? They're wearing the iconography and all that. And the guy says to me, you know, I'll go back to jail for your ass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but um, he he threatened me in front of a police officer and the police officer, you know, kind of blanked it out. And I said, did you hear that? He said, well, you didn't seem threatened. Um, and so nothing, you know, happened. And I didn't make a point of trying to follow a police report or anything because he was there and he saw what happened. And that was that. Uh, I've been sent a, an audio of someone who was, confused to be me by these same people where they mm. threatened him again they threatened mm. this person who is not me they were just minding their own business um and it's pretty terrifying uh that you know like they weren't expecting it and that's what happened yeah. to them it's unfortunately a part of my job so you know yeah. perhaps the police officer was correct i wasn't particularly threatened because uh i i'm kind of used to this and i know how to handle myself in these situations uh but i'm 
privileged in that regard and that I'm not the target of this rhetoric and these attacks. Other people are. Um, and so, you know, if they want to focus on me, I guess that's a waste of their time because it's not what they're really trying to do. Um, and, and I think, you know, threats against the press should be taken seriously, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would say that if anybody reports on this, unfortunately, it may be par for the course. Mike German, the last word goes to you. Uh, I, I just thank you and Cato for holding this conversation. I appreciate the, the work of Stephen and Chris, Christopher. And, uh, uh, you know, there's, I think, unfortunately, going to need to be a lot more of this kind of discussion uh, in the near future. Um, so hopefully we can continue to educate the public about how these uh, forces work. That was certainly uh, my hope for today. And I want to thank uh, Mike German, Stephen Monticelli, Chris Viles, all of you uh, who have watched today. Uh, please do bear in mind that we record every one of these. So if you want to go back uh, and take a look uh, again, if you um, know friends who might be interested in this particular uh, broadcast uh, and this particular topic, certainly feel free to spread the word. We encourage you to do that. Um, I will uh, once again say thanks to every one of you for uh, tuning in with us today and participating today. I'm Pat Eddington for the Cato Institute. Take care.